All right, uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles. All right, if you did not bring a Bible, uh, there's one in the pew around you. We will be in the book of Philippians. In the pew Bible, it's page 982. We've made one page. All right. Today we are looking at gospel peace. All right, so uh, before you get too comfy, go ahead and stand up with your Bibles and read along as we read God's Word. We'll read Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. Feel free to just read along while I read aloud. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Dear Father, as we look at your word this morning, firstly, we thank you for it, um, and we want to heed it. We want to more than just hear it. We want to listen to it. Uh, I pray that your spirit through your word would speak to each of us individually this morning, as well as as a broader family. And we invite you to do that. We desire to put away distractions uh, and just sit under your teaching this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So as somebody with an anxiety-prone personality, uh, I, I have a long-standing relationship with this passage. I discovered it probably in middle school, when I was in the throes of middle school panic attacks. Um, and I, I've used it many times as, as sort of a prescription for ridding myself of anxiety and, and gaining peace of mind. And, you know, honestly, I've been frustrated when that didn't work. Uh, you know, and of course, my definition of peace of mind historically and at many times is, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings that life is good. That's what I wanted. Um, and so this verse is, these verses are used in that way often and understandably so. Um, and just a, a confession, to my shame, I also once used verse 8 as a pickup line. Um, you can ask Anna. I, I literally <laughs> wrote out verse 8 and said, this is true of you, so it only makes sense that I think about you all the time. 
Yikes. She called me out on it. But peace, you know, peace of mind. This is something that's elusive. It is hard to get. And, you know, I found that when I am in a place of anxiety and set out to attain peace, I just become frustrated and more anxious. Sometimes peace of mind is like the pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. It's like the more you search for it, the more elusive it seems to be. And so what is Paul doing here? You know, is he not laying out for us a prescription for peace of mind? Is it, and if that is not what he's doing, what is he doing? And something we need to remember here as we dive into these verses is that Paul is not writing to one person to recommend strategies for that one person to obtain peace of mind. Paul is writing to a group. He's writing to a church, not to an individual. And so while these exhortations we can definitely take and apply to our individual lives Paul's original goal here was to foster a unified community for the sake of the gospel. You know, last week, Andy preached about gospel reconciliation. Because, as we see in verse 2, Paul brought up the elephant in the room. Euodia and Syntyche are fighting. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. You know, there's something going on between people in this church that Paul wanted to address. And so he gave them some encouragement to come together for the sake of Christ and the gospel. He said, I want you both to come together to agree in the Lord. And so if, if the verses we looked at last week, verses 2 and 3, are sort of his acute prescription for an acute state of conflict, these verses today are more like preventative medicine for a community life that leads to a culture of peace. Not just where each individual has peace of mind, but that that peace can be infectious. And so in our passage today, we, we see peace not as an end in itself for us to go out to pursue, but as a byproduct of something else. And what is it? Well, he mentions peace twice in this passage, and the second time gives it all away. You know, so in verse 7, Paul says, peace is the byproduct of prayer. But then in verse 9, we see that the byproduct of the life of faith is what? It says, the God of peace will be with you. And so it's the presence of the God of peace. So this passage this morning is not a magic formula for you for peace of mind. But according to Paul, gospel peace is a byproduct of a disciplined, whole life relationship with a good God. Paul isn't instructing us on how to get peace of mind here but he actually gives us step-by-step instructions on how to walk with God. But guess what? 
a byproduct of an intimate walk with God happens to be indescribable peace. Pursue peace and you'll be disappointed. Pursue a daily walk with God and you'll get both. So let's walk through Paul's detailed instructions here. Starting in verses 4 and 5, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And so the the first instruction we get from Paul on how to walk with God is rejoice in God. And you can't really get more emphatic in Paul than what he says in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. He didn't need to say, again, I would rejoice, but he does. And he does it for emphasis. He does it because he's trying to, to tell us something. You know, to this group of believers that were squabbling, that were fighting, that were disagreeing, he says, even you guys who are fighting amongst yourselves, there isn't a moment that goes by that you can't zoom out to see a reason to rejoice in Jesus Christ. That even in the midst of disagreement, disunity, difficulty, you can both individually and collectively find a solid reason to rejoice. Paul would even go as far to say that your reason for rejoicing in the Lord at any given moment outweighs your reason for not rejoicing. And so he just emphasizes it. Now, I want us to pause here for a second. Because Paul is making an assumption about this group of people. He is assuming that they know by experience that God is good. Because why would we rejoice in the Lord if we weren't happy with him? If we didn't believe he was good? And so he's assuming that there's a trust here. That there's, that there's an experience of God's goodness here. And many of us have a difficult time rejoicing in God because deep down we're not so sure that he's good. But Paul, we need to remember, he's writing from prison. (laughs) He's writing potentially weeks, months away from finding out the date of his execution. And he writes that we can at all times and in all places find a consistent, solid reason to rejoice in Christ. And so why is that? Because God is good. Because God has both done good and he will do good. You know, we've been hitting in the last few weeks the the dual reality of both cross Jesus' cross, but also Jesus' resurrection. That Jesus' resurrection empowers us to live the way of the cross. That the cross freed us from sin and gives us a future resurrection with Him. And so God has done good in sending Christ to endure the cross and then be raised. And God will do good by 
by using that same power that he raised Jesus from the dead to transform our bodies, we learned a few weeks ago, to be like his resurrected body as we enter that fully realized kingdom of Jesus. And so he recommends that this Jesus community not let one thing whatsoever knock them off course from always being ready to rejoice in the goodness of God in Christ. And that's basically what he says next. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And that's an interesting word. Um, it basically means gentleness, but also kind of a, a forbearance, an open to reasonness, a, a not letting unnecessary things ruffle your feathers. That the security you have in God's goodness provides for you a posture toward everyone of reasonableness, of gentleness. And as a community, as the church community, a gentleness in our culture, in, in how we go about our lives. Because of the knowledge that God is good, there can be a gentleness about our community. And so he says, let that be known. Since you are safe in the goodness of God, things just won't bother you as much. You'll be more gentle and more forgiving of minor offenses amongst each other. And then Paul even reminds them of the nearness of the Lord. He says, the Lord is at hand. And people debate on what that means. Is he talking like he's in our midst even now? Or is he saying the Lord's coming is near? Because in elsewhere, when he uses this language, it seems like he's talking about Jesus' coming is at hand. Either way, the Lord is both here now by his spirit, and his coming is, is at hand. It's, it's at the door. We don't know. But it's not always easy to trust in the deep goodness of God. Sometimes we go through times and seasons where it's hard to believe God is good. One of my favorite parts of God's character is that he's okay with us wrestling with that. You know, we went through five of the Psalms of Lament. There's many more than five. Most of the majority of the Psalms deal with this wrestling of God, where are you? Of God, where were you? Of God, why, why aren't you dealing with this issue? Why, why aren't you taking care of this need, of this enemy I have, of, of this material provision I need? He's okay with that. He even invites us to come to him, carrying our anger, carrying our sadness, carrying whatever is troubling us, whatever is hindering us from believing that he is good. He wants us to bring that straight to him. He isn't defensive with us. He listens. He listens to every word. He wants to hear it. This is what leads Paul to his next instruction. Because for Paul, it's because of the deep and powerful goodness of God that we can bring him everything. And that's what we see next in verse 6. To tell God everything. What does he say? He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
You know, why do we want peace? We want peace because we're bothered. (laughs) Things bother us. People bother us. Circumstances bother us. We're bugged. (laughs) Our desire for peace of mind is okay. It's a good thing. But for Paul, as we just talked about, peace of mind is not an end in itself. It's it's something that comes as a byproduct of, of something else. It's a byproduct of making God your ultimate and regular confidant. You know, most of us, if we really think about it, we understand that being anxious doesn't solve anything. It's not productive. But that doesn't stop us from investing a lot of hours in being anxious. Pouring energy into our anxious thoughts. But Jesus, you know, he said the same thing. He said, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to your life? We can't add time to our lives by being anxious. But we can definitely waste time. We can definitely steal time from our lives. And Paul tells us here that when we are bothered by a circumstance or a person or are worried about the future or whatever, every moment you are bothered, you face a fork in the road. Every time something bugs you, you face a fork in the road. We can take the road we typically take, which is, Overthinking, anxiety. Or we can take another path. But notice, this path also assumes the goodness of God. You know, if we're going to go to God with all of our problems, all of our anxieties, all of our troubling thoughts or circumstances, it should be because we know he'll do the right thing with them. You know, you don't just tell anyone your deepest, darkest thoughts, do you? No, you only tell trusted people what's going on deep down. Do you trust God enough to tell him what's going on deep down? Do you think he's good enough to tell? And if he's good enough, do you think he's powerful enough to take it? Because notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, let your requests be made known to God. And once you do that, all your requests will be answered exactly according to what you want. That's not what it says. No. So there's an element of trust at play. That everything we bring to God and we leave in his charge, we trust that He'll take care of it. You no longer have to be clever about it. You no longer have to worry about it. God will take your worries off your hands, and that's a good thing because he is good. So how does Paul say we should pray? Well, firstly, he says, don't be anxious for anything. There's two Greek words there. Nothing, be anxious. It's pretty broad. There ain't one thing that being anxious about will help. And then he says, but in everything. 
And that word everything means everything. And so I would take it even beyond the things that bring you anxiety. In everything, in your entire life, do what? By prayer and supplication. You know, that's a word pairing. Prayer is pretty broad. Supplication seems to be more needs-based. And so this is just a broad spectrum of talking with God, pouring out your heart to God, your feelings, your desires, your needs, your relationships, you name it. Personal, corporate, others-focused needs, too. And then he says, with thanksgiving. You know, and that's an interesting caveat. But notice what that means. That goes right along with this assumption of God's goodness. We pray with thanksgiving because thanksgiving equals remembering the goodness of God in the past. And what does remembering the goodness of God in the past do? It instills trust for this present circumstance. Okay, he took care of me when I was dealing with this issue at this time. So how much more will he take care of this current thing I'm facing? This current unknown that I have? This current relationship that's gone south? He'll be able to handle things this time around too. And then he says, let your requests be made known to God. This is just a fancy way of saying, tell God everything. Just tell him. And so basically, Paul is instructing us here to bring every situation to God, remembering his past faithfulness, leave it with him, and expect that he'll take good care of you. That's his instruction here. And you know what this is? This is prayer. This is a practice, also known as a spiritual discipline. You know, this is something you do to encounter the goodness of God. Do you have to do something here? Yes. But remember, this doing, all it is, is coming to the fountain. It's coming to the fountain of living water. That's all this doing is. You're not earning anything. You're just coming. And I would encourage you to adopt this for your personal life. This is very important, this practice. You know, we're also working on this as a community, to be a community of prayer. But this is how it goes. We start with rejoicing in who God is. And then we move into thanksgiving for what he's already done. And then we tell God everything. I would encourage you, if you do not have a regular practice of this, pencil it in. Start with five minutes. That's a good start. All your needs, all your worries, what you're bothered by, who you're bothered by, he wants to hear it. This is prayer. It's part of what it means to know and be known by God. And according to Paul, what does it lead to? Verse 7. 
We trade our worries for peace. He says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this this intimate going to God with everything practice, it leads to the wonderful gift of his peace. Who'd have thunk? And it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. Your translation, if you have a different one, might say it transcends understanding. Which means you'll, you'll have a peace that you can't even explain. That, yeah, things are crazy. Yeah, I'm going through the ringer. But I know I'm okay. I can't explain why, except that God has it. I love that. But I will say that that Honestly, that hasn't always been my experience. That we get that kind of warm peace of mind that that transcends understanding. And so, another way to understand this, instead of transcending understanding, you could read it as the peace of God which is better than understanding. That meaning once I entrust my situation to God, I know it's in good hands. And while I might not understand all that is happening to me, I know the person who has it in his hands. Knowing that God has it is better than me understanding. Why? Because of how powerful and good he is. It's in his hands, after all. And so what does God's peace do for us? It says it guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That word guards is a militaristic word. It guards it. It protects it. This is a robust statement. And the heart, as used in Scripture, is is the word for basically your inner control panel. Everything that makes you tick, your decision-making, your core, the peace of God guards it. But this is where you're, you know, you're processing life. This is where you sort out all of life, your heart. And so before you go and figure out this next circumstance, before you go and process and 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 figure out what you're supposed to do next, if you bring each thing, first and foremost, straight to God, your inner control panel is going to be less overloaded. You know, many of you, I don't know, might be people who, on Safari or on Chrome or whatever your internet browser has, you have like 150 open tabs, and then you wonder, why is my computer so slow? It's because you have 150 open tabs. (laughs) Close them. But that's how we are. Our inner control panel is overloaded because we're trying to figure it all out on our own. But when we bring each thing as they come straight to God, He gives back what He wants you to figure out. He paces you. He can be the one to curate your to-do list, your to-process list. But then it says, it doesn't just guard your hearts, it guards your minds. And this word means more specifically your thoughts. 
So God wants to help you curate not just your to-do list, but your to-think-about list, your thoughts. And I, I don't know about you, but it's my thought life that exhausts me the most. The things that are just running in the background, the things I'm trying to process, the things I'm thinking about. The peace of God will guard your thought life. Always, I'm constantly ruminating on this situation, that situation, this relationship, that relationship. We don't have enough energy for that way of living. And so God invites us to a simpler, yet more productive way of life. A life of peace with him in Christ. And why does he say in Christ? Because Jesus is the one. He's the one who's unlocked this for us. He's the one because of him that we can boldly enter God's throne room with everything we're carrying. Even the complaints we have against God, we can boldly enter his throne room with them because of Christ. That is incredible. Because of Jesus, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And one of the fruits of having the Holy Spirit is peace. And so it's in Christ because Jesus is the one. He's the reason we can have peace. And so where, where Paul goes next is interesting. You know, he's, he moves from us bringing everything we have, our thoughts, our concerns, our problems, our situations and cares to God, and he switches gears. He, he moves to a poetic exhortation of, of what then, if we're emptying our minds of our thoughts and our cares and our, our concerns and we're giving them to God for him to take care of, don't give them back, give me your peace instead. He turns and he says, all right, now what do you fill your mind with? And he moves from what we should share with God to what God wants to share with us. Verses 8 and 9, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And then he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. We see here that, you know, once we've sort of emptied our cache, which C-A-C-H-E, of thoughts and concerns to God, he wants to pour into us good things. And so we see here that Paul wants us to curate godly inputs and then copy them. You know, we, leave, we live in a culture of content, big time. Oh, man, YouTube, podcasts, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Spotify playlists, audiobooks, regular books, chat GPT. We live in a culture of curated content. Just bring it on, content. I can take it. I want to know. I want to get it. I want to be in the know and in the loop. You know, never before, ever. In human history, have we had such a vast amount of content readily available for us to consume? Anyone in the world with internet. 
But how healthy has this deep pool of content been for us, for society? You know, despite being able to connect with anyone, anywhere, we are so lonely. Despite having literally access to all the knowledge in the world at the tips of our fingers, we don't even know what's true or who to trust. You know, all of us are curating content for ourselves. And Paul here, he's calling attention to that. 2,000 years ago, he's saying, I know you're going to access content. That's fine. Access good content. He gives us a checklist for what to include in the content we consume. Things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Fill your minds with these things, he says. You know, you can just take two of these words, true and just. Knowing what's true, knowing what's just, ain't that the question of our day? And what we need is wisdom. We need wisdom and we need discernment to know when we're consuming content that is good and when we're getting distracted by garbage. How do we know the difference? Well, Paul helps us out in verse 9. You know, you know, who of you could say to anyone, do as I say and do as I do? Just blanket statement. Copy me. That's what Paul says right here. He says, do as I've taught you and do as you've seen me do. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, do it. Wow. But moves, notice that he quickly moves from thinking to action. You know, he doesn't say, well, you've learned, received, heard, and seen me. Think about that, too. No, he says, practice these things. That word practice means do it. Just do it. Make it your life. Copy my routine. And so it's important for us to remember that the Christian life is not all in our head. That life is not all in our head. You know, you don't just worship God with your heart and your mind. You worship Him with your whole self, which includes your body, your behavior, what you do, your daily routines, your habits, your priorities. That's what Paul is encouraging us this morning. And he takes full responsibility for them. And he invites them, just like he did in chapter 3, to imitate him. And so first, he says, what you have learned and received. You know, and that's most likely referring to the teaching of the scriptures and the teaching of the gospel that Paul had presented to them. And how to live for Christ that Paul had given them while he was present with them. And so this means that the content we curate for ourselves should be in line with Scripture and the Gospel. But something you should notice, or that we can notice here, is that the words he uses, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, all these, these are actually borrowed terms from his culture. 
Some of these words aren't found anywhere in Scripture, but they're found elsewhere in the Greco-Roman kind of era, the culture of his day. And so it's, it's interesting that Paul is saying here, there's just, there's good things out there. There's symphonies. There's beauty. There's great fiction and stories. There's, you know, it's not just that we need to fill our minds with the word. We do. But we also can see that God has poured out, they call it common grace in the world. That there's things we should enjoy and appreciate for what they are. A beautiful hike, beautiful music, a friendship. These things are also true and honorable, commendable, excellent. But then he moves on to what they had heard and seen. And this is interesting because he uses those two same words back in chapter 1. If you want to turn back, you can. He says in chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, he says, It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you shouldn't only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And then he says, Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. And so what had they seen and heard in Paul? They had seen and heard how he dealt with suffering. And so Paul basically instructs them in two things. He says, live for the truth of the gospel as contained in the gospel and the scripture. And secondly, have the same posture that I took and do take in standing for the truth of the gospel. And what is that posture? It's one of willingness to suffer. It's one of going the way of Jesus, which is the way of the cross. You know, he wants them, just like him, to live out the truth of the cross and in the way of the cross. All the while, filling their minds with a steady stream of God-soaked goodness. Now, that's a life. That's a good life. That is Paul's prescription for the good life. And so finally, what is the byproduct of this good life? He says, the God of peace will be with you. He'll be with you. All of this, in essence, is basically a God-centered life. That God is the source of your ultimate joy. He's the reason that you can rejoice at all times, in all places, at any moment. You can rejoice. He can take all that enters your head and transform it into his peace when you bring it to him. And he wants to fill you with good things and give you things to do that bring life. Many of us want an experience of the presence of God. That's a good thing. How do we we get that? How do we access the presence of God. Well, we have it right here. What's the end of the line? The God of peace will be with you. Do these things. Keeping in mind that the doing here is pretty simple. It's taking advantage of the goodness of a relationship with God. 
rejoicing in who Jesus is, what he has done, what he will do. Bringing all our worries, our concerns, our problems, our successes, our relationships, everything to him. And he'll trade you for peace. Filling our mind and our lives with what is good, true, and beautiful. Center not just your mind, but your whole self on the truth of the gospel. This isn't a magic formula for peace. This is just how a real relationship with the God of peace works. You want to encounter the presence of God. This is how to do it. It starts with rejoicing in him. And it goes from there. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the type of a God you are. Lord, that you are so good and have done such good for us that we always have a reason to rejoice. And yet you're so kind that you accept us when we're just not there. You, you welcome us into your presence when all we have are complaints. But a lot of times it's when we can throw those at you and you take them from us that we can then turn again to rejoicing. That's the type of a God you are. And so we want to worship you this morning. We want to give you our lives afresh this morning. We want to listen to your spirit speak to us. We want to go before you in your presence in the morning before we set about our us-made to-do list, our us-made think-about list. God, thank you that you're inviting us to that. I pray for each of us this morning who, who could use a little more intimacy with you, who could use a little more awareness of the peace of God and of the God of peace. What a wonderful invitation you've given us. Help us to do it. Thank you that you en enable and empower and invite us to action. Not just assent, but with believing you with our bodies, believing you with our words, believing you with our calendars, with our sleep schedules, with our choices. I pray that your spirit would empower each one who wants it to do these things this morning, and it starts with worship. And so we turn to do that now. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to spend some time worshiping the Lord. Uh, and then if you want to receive prayer one-on-one, -on -one, if you know, a lot of times uh, it's in the process of giving our, our uh, concerns and worries to another brother or sister that we are actually, it's, it's easier than to submit it to God. And so Zane and, um, forget, Heather, thanks, will be up front uh, to pray for you if you want to come receive prayer. If you want to give of tithes or offerings, you can do that in the box right here. And then communion table is set. If you're a believer in Jesus, you've, you've submitted your life to him and need to remember what he did for you, it's set. His blood, his body poured out and broken for you. So let's spend some time just joyfully worshiping him, bringing him everything.